last week was Pentecost, and we all know what Pentecost was, the birthday of the church. So this week, we're going to talk about Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Messiah. We refer to him as Jesus Christ. I don't know if everybody here understands that Christ is not Jesus's last name, right? Like Bob Jones. It's not Jesus Christ. That's not his last name. So we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Go to Psalm chapter 2. In verse 1, it says, Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? That's got an ominous sound to it, doesn't it? The kings of this earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against whom? The Lord and against his anointed one. How many people are there or how many individuals? Do. It's against the Lord, Yahweh, and against his anointed one. And that's who we're going to be talking about today, Jesus the Messiah. In Old Testament times, prophets, priests, and kings were anointed with oil when they were set apart for these positions and responsibilities. The anointing was a sign that God had chosen them and consecrated them for the work that he had them doing. Go to uh, John chapter 20, look in verse 30. It said, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. What book? The book of, the, yeah, John, the gospel of John. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So this is a really important verse. You know, there are folks out there who believe that Jesus is God. They adamantly believe that Jesus is God. In fact, they believe that the gospel of John demonstrates this fact more than any other gospel. But the fact is, is that the gospel of John testifies to itself. And it says that the purpose of this gospel is to show that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you have life in his name. That's what the purpose of the gospel of John is all about. So getting back to my original point, Christ is not Jesus's last name, that it you could easily translate it Jesus Messiah, Jesus the Messiah. So wherever you see Jesus Christ in your mind, you should think Jesus Messiah. I think a lot of times when we talk about Jesus Christ, it doesn't register that we're talking about the Messiah, that this is purposeful, that his name is associated with Messiahship. Okay, so we're going to talk about what the Messiah is. Okay, what is a Messiah? Well, in the Hebrew, it's, uh, it's the Hebrew word Meshiach. In the Greek, it's Christ. They both mean the same thing. It means anointed, anointed one. In biblical times, anointing someone with oil was a sign that God was consecrating them, as I said earlier. So let's go to 1 Kings chapter 19, 1 Kings 19. And in verse 15, it says, The Lord said to him, and this is Elijah, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king of Aram, or over Aram. Aram is Syria. Also, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. So we have two kings, and these two kings are being anointed for their task, right? And then it says, and anoint Elijah, son of Shapheth, or Shaphat, from Abel Meholah to succeed you as 
prophet. So we have two kings and we have a prophet who are being anointed here. Okay, go to Leviticus chapter 8, look in verse 10. It says, And Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and everything in it, and so consecrated them. That's a, that's a good word right there, consecrate. Consecrate means to set apart, okay? Um, we also talk about holy. Holy and consecrate go hand in hand, all right? It means to set apart. Verse 11, he sprinkled some of the oil on the altar seven times, anointing the altar and all its utensils and the basin with its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Okay, so this oil that, that we're using to anoint means that you're setting somebody apart for the Lord, right? For Yahweh. Now, who was Aaron? Does anybody remember who Aaron was? Moses's brother, older brother. When you talk about Israel, what was the important thing about Aaron? He's the first priest, and he was Moses's older brother. God told Moses in Numbers 3.10 to appoint Aaron and his sons to serve as priests. Verse 13, it says, And he brought Aaron's son forward, sons forward, put tunics on them, tied sashes around them, and put headbands on them, as the Lord commanded Moses. And these were the Levites, okay, the Levitical tribe. So you had 12 tribes of Israel, and one of the tribes was apportioned to God, all right? It was his. It was the tithe, if you think about it. Out of all of Israel, one tribe was dedicated to Yahweh, and that was the Levitical tribe. And that's where all your priests came from, except for Melchizedek. He did not come from the Levitical priesthood. He came from a different order, a different line. So in verse 30, it says, And Moses took some of the anointing oil and some of the blood from the altar and sprinkled them on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and their garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and their garments. Okay, so this is the anointing. All right. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 9, 1 Samuel 9. We're going to start looking at some of the significance of this anointing. So 1 Samuel 9, we're going to be talking about Saul here. Look in verse 25. It says, After they came down from the high place to the town, Samuel talked with Saul on the roof of the house. They rose about daybreak, and Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Get ready, and I will send you on your way. When Saul got ready, he and Samuel went outside together. As they were going down to the edge of town, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go on ahead of us. And the servant did so. But you stay here a while, so that I may give you a message from God. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance? So, as king... Samuel the prophet made Saul king over Israel by anointing him with oil, all right? Now, the unfortunate thing was Saul turned out to be unfaithful, didn't he? He was unfaithful. Next, we're going to look at a story of Samuel, the same prophet, speaking with Jesse, the father of who? David, yes. 1 Samuel chapter 16, 1 Samuel 16. So Samuel's up there, he's going through all of David's brothers, and he looks at one brother, and he says, he's a good-looking guy. And he says, is this a guy, Lord? And 
The Lord says, nope. How about this guy? Nope. How about this guy? And then the Lord says, look, I don't look on the outward appearance. I look on the heart, right? And so we'll pick it up in verse 11. And so he asked Jesse, are these all the sons that you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy. um, That means good looking. Uh, with a fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. How about that? Isn't that great? So the Lord knew who was going to be king. So uh, it says in verse 13, so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, now listen to this, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. So this is important. This oil anointing was more than just a ceremony. There was a spiritual component to this. And just as Saul, remember Saul got the anointing, he also got the spirit. But we're going to see something coming up here shortly. So it's more than symbolic. Uh, It says Samuel then went to Ramah, verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. So he had, in all, for all intents and purposes, lost his anointing. He lost that Holy Spirit that he had been anointed with. And that was something. Because of his failure as king, Yahweh removed the anointing from Saul, even as he gave it to David. So that was the anointing. The anointing was moved to David. Now, several weeks ago, we talked about envy. And we talked about the, the spiritual envy that Saul had for David. Remember when the women were singing, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands, right? And we noted this spiritual envy that Saul no longer had the Holy Spirit. He no longer had the Holy Spirit, but David did. And did Saul know it? He certainly did. And he envied David for that. That's something, huh? Instead of repenting, exactly. But it's also interesting that, you know, uh, so Saul went on this campaign to murder David and pursued him and his men all over Israel. And throughout Saul's campaign of trying to murder David, David continued to honor Saul as being the Lord's anointed. Isn't that something? When David's men were urging him to kill Saul, Saul rebuked them. And he said to them, Lord, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. That's a big deal. So, so you had this man here, Saul, who was no longer anointed. We know that because the spirit had left him. But David held him in high regard. And I think that's something that we should all kind of keep in mind. You know, it's easy to be with a ministry at, and then leave that ministry and and then talk badly about that ministry or whatever. But we got to follow David's example, I think, and speak, you know, kind things, you know, hold fast to what is good. Instead of trashing former ministers, we shouldn't be lifting our hand against the Lord's anointed, right? So this idea of anointing, we even carry it into this administration, which is kind of cool. It continues to mean that God has anointed a person with his Holy Spirit. But the difference is, is in the Old Testament, God would anoint one person here and one person here and one person there. But for the most part, Israel was, you know, they they had no spirit upon them, just certain men. It was always God's desire to have spirit upon everybody. But back then it wasn't available, right? 
In this administration, this period of time, though, every time you have a person who gets born again, he is anointed with God's Spirit. Isn't that awesome? He's anointed. That is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's awesome. That's amazing. You don't have to turn there, but 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says, Now it is God who makes us and makes both us and you stand firm in Christ, the Messiah. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. What a great verse, isn't it? I'm going to read that over again. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I think we heard it in the manifestations about the hope and how it is coming. Well, that spirit, that anointing that you have is your proof that that hope is coming. Isn't that something? So if you start getting a little, you know, iffy on the hope, just start speaking in tongues, right? Pretty cool. Uh, First Peter says that, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. I love that. I love that. So when we were talking about the Old Testament, about how God would anoint the, the priest, the king, and the prophet, well, we're a holy priesthood. We're sacerdotal, the body of Christ, right? Isn't that neat? First uh, John chapter 2 says that his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. So we have this anointing. Now, a lot of people use the term anointing. I was anointed by the Spirit, as in, you know, I got a, a word of revelation. That's the improper use of that, right? Um, the proper use is when you got born again, you received the anointing. That was the anointing. Anyway, back to Jesus. So this is the idea of the Messiah. He is the anointed one. Okay, Meshiach or Christos. Those are the two words, and they both mean the same thing. So every time you read Jesus Christ or Christ or Christ Jesus, it has this element, very important element of Messiahship in it that he is the Messiah, right? Commissioned by God, anointed by God to do this task. Now, go to Isaiah chapter 61. So in the Old Testament, what did God say about the Messiah? Well, he said a lot. He said a lot about the Messiah, but this this one section here that we're going to read, this captures it all for me. And so it's Isaiah 61. And in verse 1, it says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. How about that? The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. That's beautiful, isn't it? So it's not just a little bit of oil on your head. That is an outward demonstration of the inward reality of this Spirit that is being put on him. Right. And I, th- I thought about this this morning that, you know, this this answers Pharaoh's question, if you remember it from Genesis 41, where he says, can we find anyone like this man talking about Joseph? Can we find any man, anyone like this man on a one in whom is the spirit of God? Isn't that something? This is it. And this is the prophecy in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. OK. Uh, It says, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. 
to proclaim, now listen very carefully here, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Two things there, okay? And this is important because we're going to look at this as we go through the scripture. So this proclamation is for two things regarding this Messiah. A, the year of the Lord's favor, and B, the day of vengeance of our God. Two things, okay? To comfort all who mourn, verse 3, and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. Doesn't that just really make your heart well up? Let me read that over again. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. Is our God a good God? That's awesome. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Now listen to this. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. See, this is the thing. Remember, the thief cometh not, but to do what? Still kill and destroy. He's the destroyer. We look around us and we see moral decay and depravity, right? Degradation, people doing things and you're just shaking your head and you're saying, what happened to the America I used to know as a kid? You know? <laughs> and you can see this and, and it's, it's disheartening to see, you know, families fall apart. You know, it, it, there's this spiritual entropy going on in this world where things that were in order have fallen into disorder. And for any of us, you, you, would be, you'd, you would have to be dull of hearing and blind spiritually not to notice it and to despair at it. But you read the Word of God and it says that the Messiah, <laughs> this coming Messiah, is going to rebuild the ancient ruins, restore the places long devastated, renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Other places in the Word, it talks about how when the Spirit of God is present, that the desert will become a luscious garden. You know, I mean, that's our God. Aliens will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. How about that? So that's the proclamation in the Old Testament of the coming Messiah. Now, go to Luke chapter 4. Jesus Christ was born, right? He had extraordinary skills. He could debate with the Sanhedrin in the temple. People were amazed at his capability. And then he stood up, chapter 4, verse 16. He went to Nazareth. That's where he lived as a kid, right? Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Wow. Could you imagine being one of the attendees of, of that, that meeting and going, holy moly, this record that you have read your entire life is being fulfilled right here. This was the Lord's ordination, or you could call it his consecration, right? This was the Lord's 
Um, this was the day where he his ministry was declared. It goes on and says, He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, period. Okay, so remember, we were reading before where it was to proclaim the day of the Lord and the year of vengeance of our, yeah, uh, the year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, right? Here, he didn't read that second part. He just read the first part. That's important. And keep that in mind as we go forward. Verse 20, then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Okay, so year of the Lord's favor, day of the Lord's wrath, and Jesus proclaimed just the the one. And then it goes on, it says, the eyes of everyone in that synagogue were fastened on him. You could have probably heard a you know, pin drop, right? And he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Wow, I get goosebumps. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. (laughs) So, uh, isn't that funny? So, this is Jesus, and this was Jesus being ordained, okay? Um, Yeah, I think of how much time that Christians spend trying to shoehorn the Trinity into the Bible, and they don't see the obvious truth. It's not about Jesus being God, it's Jesus being the anointed of God. This is important. This is who Jesus Christ is in Scripture. He's God's anointed. He's God's Christ, right? He's anointed with God's Spirit. Remember what we read at the beginning of the teaching in John 20, 31. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christos, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So, Our eternal life, our salvation, is dependent not on Jesus being God, but by Jesus being the Messiah of God. Is that that clear? It's just crucial. Go to John chapter 3 and look in verse 26. They came to John, John the Baptist, and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified of, well, he is baptizing everyone, and everyone is going with him. You know, our our church is getting smaller while that church is getting bigger. (laughs) You know, there's a little bit of competitiveness here, right? We talked about that a couple of weeks ago when we talked about envy, right? And so they were bringing this to John's attention. Look, you know, John, you know, this guy's becoming greater and greater and you're being diminished. And But John knew better, didn't he? Verse 27, it says, to this, John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. How about that? And we talked about that several weeks ago. If each one of us truly had that in our hearts regarding our, our own ministries and the ministries of others, then if somebody rose to prominence and you got eclipsed a little bit, that's just fine with you because it's the Lord's purposes that you're interested in, not your own. And there's a lot of ambition in the church today. That whole thing we were talking about, you know, the the, uh, Southern Baptist Convention, that whole thing is driven by ambition. Oh, my gosh. But not here. John the Baptist knew better. Verse 28, you yourselves can testify that I have said, I'm not the Christ, I'm not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. 
I love it. I love it. The joy is mine, and it is now complete. That's awesome. He must become greater. I must become less. Wow. That's it. That's that's the money right there. Turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. So somewhere along the way, though, John and or his disciples had a little doubt about Jesus's Messiahship. And we're going to read about that here. So Luke chapter 7 and verse 18, it says, John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord and said, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Now, this seems a little odd, doesn't it? Remember, when we were just reading about John, he was fully persuaded. He was like, you know, this was given to him from God. I came as a forerunner. That was my purpose. My purpose is done. He's in, you know, full fledged right now. All right, in full ministry. Now, remember what we read earlier, too, about how, you know, in the Old Testament back in Isaiah 61, it says that the Messiah was going to come and was going to declare the year of the Lord's favor, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and proclaim the day of the Lord's wrath. So, why this? Well, I th- I'm pretty sure that they were looking for both of these things in Jesus's ministry, but they were only seeing one of them, right? They weren't seeing a lot of wrath, were they? No, but they were seeing a lot of people getting healed and set free and blessed. And that was always a theological conundrum for the rabbis in the Old Testament, because they saw these two aspects to the Messiah. And But, you know, some of them actually thought there were two Messiahs. Isn't that something? They, they saw the two aspects. They didn't realize that there were certainly two aspects, but they came at different times. When Jesus had his earthly ministry in the Gospels, that was that first part, right, where he healed the brokenhearted, set the captives free. But the other part is yet to come. So I think John, either John or his disciples were struggling over this. Are you the one or does there come another? You see that? And the another could could have meant, look, are you the first part or the second part or both? You know, that's what that's what he was asking. He wasn't asking if Jesus really was the Messiah. He was asking, look, is there more to this than I figured out? So in verse 21, it says, at the very time, Jesus cured many who had uh, diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. The acceptable day of the Lord. See that? Isn't that something? Blessed is a man that does not fall away on account of me. I think that's awesome. Now, of course, the scribes and the Pharisees, they rejected Jesus as being an imposter. Here he was going around. You know, people were saying, he's the Messiah, he's the Messiah. And they were saying, nope, nope, he does everything through magic and, you know, his familiarity with devil spirits. But it was Jesus's own miracles that he used as proof of his Messiahship. So go to John chapter 1, chapter 1 of the Gospel of John and verse 40. It says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. Isn't that great? 
we have found the Messiah. So what, 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 what was this? Was the Messiah lost and they found him? No. No, they found the Messiah that they had been prophesying about in the Old Testament. Verse 42, and they brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated uh, Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. And now remember, the only prophecy of Moses about Jesus was what? The prophet, that he was the prophet to come, right? And so this is what it's talking about. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good Come from there, Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here is a true Israelite, in whom there is nothing false. Isn't that beautiful? How do you know me, Nathanael said. And Jesus said, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus said, you believe because I told you and I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Isn't that beautiful? That's great. Go to John chapter 4. Another story here. This is the story of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. So he came to the town of Samaria near Sychar. Near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus saw her. Would you give me drink? His disciples had gone to town to buy food. The Samaritan woman. Now, remember, the Samaritans were Gentiles, but they had a, you know, they believed in Yahweh, and they believed in the coming Messiah. All right. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whosoever drinks the water that I will give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become his spring of water welling up to eternal life. What are we talking about there? The Holy Spirit, right? Verse 15, the woman asked him, or said to him, sir, give me the water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. Well, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. 
What you have have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our people worshipped on this mount, or worshipped on this mountain, but you, you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. And Jesus declared, "Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming." and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Oh, man. And this is a Samaritan woman who didn't deserve any of it, right? Didn't deserve any of it. But who does, right? Verse 27. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. No one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking to her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ, the Messiah? And they came out of town and made their way towards him. Isn't that something? So, uh, John 20, look at verse 30. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in the book of John. Matthew 16. So Jesus is the Messiah. Matthew 16, look at verse 13. So Jesus is talking to his disciples. When Jesus, in verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he said to his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? That's a good question, huh? Right? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Well, what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. Isn't that wonderful? So, I mean, this is quite a testimony, I think. You ask people, who is Jesus? Everybody has their own opinion who Jesus is. Well, what does the scripture say? Well, this was testified by God himself, and God said, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's it. That's it. That is Christianity. Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah. Go to John chapter 11. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she said to him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. Isn't that something? I love it. 
John chapter 7, verse 25. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, Is this the man that they are trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. And Jesus, verse 28, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own accord, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. That's the Messiah, okay? He sent him. Go to John seven forty, chapter 7, verse 40. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the, the prophet. Others said, He is the Christ. Still others said, How can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. And that's true today, isn't it? People are divided. Now Jesus kept saying over and over again, I am he. I am he. Chapter 8, John chapter 8, verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Verse 18. I am one, the one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the father who testifies or who sent me. Verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. Now it goes on in the NIV to say the one I claim to be. That's added. That's not in the, in the text. Now it's, it's, it works, but it kind of minimizes. I am he. I'm the Messiah. You will indeed die in your sins. Right? Verse 28. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And not the one I claim to be. That's not it. I am he, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. Okay, so we see this progression, right? I am he, I am he, I am he. And then we get down to verse 58. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am. <laughs> and everybody says, ah, it's the great I am, the great I am. It's not the great I am. Those words there, I am, are the same words that we've been reading. I am he. Same words. It's just here, they forgot to put the he in there so that they could make this, uh, you know, theological thing. Jesus is the Messiah. When he kept saying, I am he, I am he, this is what he was talking about. Before Abraham was, I am he. I'm the guy, right? I'm the foretold Messiah. Go to John chapter 10, look at verse 24. The Jews gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are God, tell us plainly. Does it say that? No, it does not say that. It says, if you are the Christ. Now, you might think that I'm just, you know, beating a dead horse here. I am not. <laughs> I, I have been online with people who swear that all the Pharisees and all the people knew that he was God. It's not true. It's not in the scripture. The Pharisees didn't think he was God. The Pharisees were competing with him, trying to prove that he was not the Christ. It's the Christ. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And what did Jesus said? I did tell you, but you do not believe. 
the miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. How about that? Acts chapter 10, verse 39. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God has already chosen by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins through his name. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, so Jesus fulfills the role of the prophet, the priest, and the king. Go to Luke chapter 24 and verse 25. Luke 24, verse 25. Remember Jesus when he was crucified and then he came back and he's walking with the two fellows on the road to him. Yeah. And he's talking to him and he has this whole thing. And so in verse 25, Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe what all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Moses and all the prophets testified of what? Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus is bearing witness of himself here as Jesus, the Messiah. And we're going to finish up in Acts. Go to Acts chapter 2. Day of Pentecost. This is day of Pentecost, and look at verse 31, Acts 2.31. This is Peter speaking in a sermon, and he says, Seeing what was ahead, he, David, spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, Messiah, that he was not abandoned in the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of that fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, but yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, now listen to this, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Isn't that great? Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus, the Messiah, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. That's something. I think any honest student of the Bible will notice that nowhere in the book of Acts can you find the Trinity or the divinity of Christ. Why? 
because the book of Acts testifies to Jesus, the Messiah. Okay? All right. So, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this. And we thank you, Father, for your word, that your word is is awesome. It's bigger than all of us. I thank you that your word declares, proclaims Jesus Christ, the Messiah, that this was the word that the apostles spoke. And thank you, Heavenly Father, that this is a word that we speak. In your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. 